All right. Well, uh, welcome to BSing with Sean K. I'm your host, Sean Neese. Today, my guest is Al Matram. He is uh, an, an actor, and he has appeared on such popular television shows as uh, Animal Planets, Monsters Inside Me, and uh, the Travel Channel's Greatest Mysteries. He's also acted in productions at the Teaneck New Theater and has done work as a voice actor. So uh, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. So uh, what can you tell us about yourself and how did you first get started with acting? Well, I'm uh, 60 years old. I worked in corporations for most of my adult life. Started college as a music major. Decided I couldn't make a living playing trombone, so ended up... Uh, getting a degree in accounting, working in corporations, doing accounting, and then uh, production planning work up until about a year ago. I started taking some acting lessons around 2009 to support an interest in voiceover and uh, took a half a dozen, dozen acting classes. I uh, retired about a year ago and uh, began self-submitting to the type of roles that you're talking about for investigation, discovery, travel channel, student films, things of that nature. And uh, what made you like uh, pursue it this late in your career? Uh, well, I had always, uh, in the mid-90s, I had developed an interest in voiceover, and I never quite got off the ground with that, and the industry has changed a great deal from when I first developed an interest in voiceover in the 90s. Back then, you you needed to work with professional studios, and now it's all homegrown studios, and you have to invest in having a pretty good home studio to, to make that work. Um, so I was always, I always had this interest in the back of my mind uh, towards the end of 2008, 2009. I was reading more and more in the voiceover forums that it's good to take acting lessons to improve the natural quality, the conversational quality of your voice. So I started taking those classes, and within a year or two after that, I was more or less drafted into the musical production at the Teaneck New Theater to play a role in a jukebox musical called All Shook Up. And I found out I actually liked the acting, so I decided to look into it a little bit further. Uh, went back to the acting school that I had taken a little bit of a pause from and took some classes in TV commercials and working for film and camera to learn how to self-submit, how to market yourself in the New York area. And uh, how would you compare like uh, voice acting to other types of acting? Well, I, I have not been able to do a whole lot of voice acting. I've done a couple of uh, very limited voice acting gigs as ADRs for a student film or two. Uh, it seems to me that at this point in life, getting started in voice acting is actually a bit more difficult than on-camera acting. Before you can really get serious in the voice acting realm, you, you need to have your professional calling card, which is your professionally produced demo. And that can cost a fair amount of money and it, it takes quite a bit of time to to really get your your niche defined as to what you're going to be doing. Whereas acting, you can you can begin submitting for some of these uh, low budget films, such as the Travel Channel, the Investigation Discovery, student films with with very little experience, and you can kind of learn as you go. So uh, I, I find I'm finding it easier to kind of get a foot in the door through the acting door than the voiceover door. So would you say uh, there are any similarities between performing music and acting? Or um, There are. You know, music, you know, I went from music to accounting and, and then voiceover acting. And, you know, music is a, a different language. It's a language skill. It's, it's dealing with code. Uh, you know, if you look at written music, most people don't understand it, but it has a, a mathematical property. It has a rhythm. It has cycles. It has multiple multiple dimensions in terms of harmonies and moving forward and moves through different moods. And and that's all characteristic of acting as well. The 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 arc of the scene, um, the rhythm of a scene, and an entire production. Uh, so the cycles, the mood changes, the volume changes, uh, they're all quite easily correlated, I think. 
And uh, would you say like you you enjoyed uh, accounting on any level, or was that more just uh, a way to make a living? Or... It turned out to be a way of making a living. Um, it's kind of interesting when I when I decided what I wanted to do other than music, I. I looked at the corporations and I said to myself, as a trombone player, there's not very many bands that, uh, that utilize trombones, but there's, uh, a lot of, every band has a drummer. So I said, who's the drummer in a corporation? And I decided that would be the accountant. Every corporation, every business has an accountant. And also from music, I had learned that, um, I enjoyed things that I did well. Music that I had once performed poorly and did not like, once I gained competency and started liking it and started doing it well, my enjoyment increased. So I I thought that if I got good enough at something, I'd start enjoying it. I got pretty good at accounting, but I never really enjoyed it. So that philosophy didn't really pan out. And I, and I guess it kind of tied in with the whole, uh, like the, the num, the, the, the numeric aspect, I guess, of it, right? Like the, with like, like you saying, there was a rhythm to acting and music, I guess. Yeah, I found in, in the corporate world, many people that had started, uh, out of high school thinking they were going to be musicians. And a lot of them had gone into accounting or computer programming. Uh, computer programming is even more natural for a lot of folks because of the coding and the decoding and dealing with the abstract principles and so forth. Uh, but the mathematical part of accounting and the cycles and the rhythms uh, in music, there, there, there is something in terms of the way the mind is wired that makes them work together. And accounting principles and the way accounting is applied is fairly abstract to most people, trying to make sense of debits and credits and all that sort of thing. So uh, how would you describe the experience of working on a set? Well, since it's still relatively new to me, the, the experience of working on a set is, is always interesting. And I think that's the main thing people go through in their first year or two of experience is, is learning what is going on in a set, what your role as an actor is. And uh, depending on what your background is, uh, myself having a background as, as a manager, uh, I was always very observant, seeing things that were going on, asking a lot of questions, pointing things out, you know, like a shadow moving across the wall in the course of a scene, and uh, it took a took a few months, a few student productions, to learn that uh, those comments were not really welcome. It's not really the role of the actor to to worry about those things. If it was something blatant, uh, the assistant director or director might take those comments and and, and respond favorably. Uh, but you have to sit back and and let the directors and the producers come to their own terms with the way a scene is playing out and they the way they want it to move. And, you know, it's critical if you're in a role where you're actually acting versus playing a background performer to be able to understand direction. Uh, I've been in scenarios where I've heard a, a director tell an actor, okay, do that again, but do not slam down your hand. And the actor proceeds to do the exact same thing he had just done and slam down his hand. And the director may tell him three times, okay, do the same thing, but don't slam your hand down. And the actor keeps slamming his hand down. Uh, so it's, it's really key to listen and understand what's being said to you and, and follow those directions. And there's a lot of things happening. The, the, the nature of acting on a set is, is a lot of hurry up and wait. You'll, you'll come in. Uh, there's a lot of work done for the people producing a film, especially to, to set up the lighting correctly, all the nuances of light, natural light, artificial light, getting the shadows correct, putting objects in the room, uh, dealing with reflections, dealing with the actors, getting them positioned just right. So you very often feel that you're, you're sitting there for a very long time. And then when it comes down to performing your lines or a scene, you, you may have been on set for four hours and then you're involved for 10 minutes on a scene. It's the nature of the animal. So would you say like there's times where you thought maybe you would have done something differently than the director was doing or... No, not not really. Um, 
it's just that I was in, I was in one student film where I was playing the part of, uh, the main character's father. And I was supposed to be on my deathbed and dying. And there was a scene that was supposed to last about two minutes. And they had me laying in bed to do this scene. And it took about eight hours to get the scene shut as a director kept making minor adjustments. And as you go through multiple different point of views with a camera, a close-up of me, a close-up of the other person, the person of the two of us from one angle in the room, uh, a point of view from over the other actor's shoulder, various different things like this. So it takes a lot of time. And in the, and in the course of the day, here was the example. As I was laying in bed and watching the way the, the room was lit, I could see there was a shadow on a wall. And and as time passed, that shadow moved all the way across the wall in the course of the day. So uh, I just asked the director at one point, is, you know, is that a problem? You know, is in, is that in the shot or is, is that something that's causing you a concern in terms of continuity? And uh, he, he was glad to hear it. it. It did not turn out to be an issue. But uh, if you throw in too many of those comments, uh, it, it's probably not the best thing. And what uh, would you say like are some of your favorite experiences being on set, and what are some of the your the ones you didn't the parts about it you didn't like as much, I guess? Well, the the best experiences is when you, you go into a scene and you're well prepared. You know who your character is. You know what he, the character is supposed to be doing. What his relationship is with the other characters and. It comes down to the director calling action, and you move through a given presentation of the scene very quickly, uh, consistent with what the director had in mind and the way the other actors were thinking. You run through it once, and they say, okay, that was good. Let's do one more for safety, as compared to maybe running something 35 times over and over and over, trying to get the nuances correct. Sometimes it's yourself. Sometimes it's the other actor. Uh, sometimes the director just has a, it's not working out the way they thought, and there needs to be a change. Uh, and it all goes with the territory. And what can you say about like some of the student films and uh, ind- independent films you've been in, and uh, what, what were some of the ones you enjoyed the most? Uh, it kind of goes to something that I've been adapting to, having moved into this industry, having worked in, in a corporate world where everything is very highly organized and planned uh, before anything is executed. I, I find that in a lot of... Uh, the artistic elements in terms of filming that things are not necessarily all that well thought out. So you'll, you'll have a call time of 7 a.m. and arrive on set and find out that they can't really do anything with your character for another three hours because someone forgot to bring a, a boom for a microphone or somebody forgot to bring one of the key lighting elements, and they have to go out and rent one at the last minute. Um, those are situations that can be a little bit frustrating. And, and I have noticed, uh, in, in particular with student films, that you know, the students are learning as well. This is what the student film is all about, is for the student to learn. Uh, very often the actors are learning at the same time, but a, a student film that's done by a freshman in their first film class uh, is going to be very, very different than that same student in their senior thesis. They learn the elements of organization and the roles of the various different people, you know, the cameramen, the gaffers, the, the crew, what different people should be doing, and they begin learning how to direct more and, and move things forward rather than trying to do everything themselves. So I guess it's something you learn more from experience than something you can be taught. I think it can be taught, but I think in 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 the world of art and film, I don't think 
planning is the thing that's taught. I think the focus is more on the artistic side, and it's expected that the people will pick up the planning components as they go along through experience. So what I'm saying is it could be taught, but it would probably lengthen the educational process. And uh, what can you say about some of the work you've done uh, for television, like uh, on investigation discovery, and uh, what were some of your favorite roles to play? Well, investigation discovery, uh, one of the ones I really liked was uh, an episode of a program called I'd Kill For You, where I was portraying the person that murdered somebody in the show. In in a lot of the reality-based TV programs, you are reenacting an event, and they may or may not have you speaking and interacting with one another, and when the final product is delivered, you may be disappointed if you look at it and you see that you see your face in a room, you see your mouth moving, you see yourself talking to somebody, uh, but you don't hear a single word you say because the narrator is going over describing what the situation is and it's, it's like they're narrating over a silent film. Um, when I did the program, I'd kill for you, they set up each scene with the two or three actors that were involved and told them, told you what the situation was and told you to improvise, act real and imaginary circumstances and have a conversation or a disagreement or an argument but, but verbalize and, and use the body movements and everything else that would make that situation real. And in that particular show, much of that survived to be on the finished product when it was broadcast. And it was nice to watch this and actually see yourself engaged, talking to somebody, having the scene make sense, but you were acting, you were improvising, but you were keeping it true to what the story was that was supposed to be told. And I guess there's a bit more freedom with what you can do and with that, too. Uh, within the rules of improv and staying with your character, yes. Uh, there was one student film that I did that the director did almost the entire film as, as improv. He had a script which served as a guideline, but the actors were free to operate within their characters uh, and emote and, and say their lines and do all of their work virtually any way they wanted, which was which was very good from from an actor's perspective, being, having that freedom to do that. I think it may lead to some technical issues when uh, the filmmaker goes back to that a month later and tries to glue together all these different pieces from different points of view and the conversation never aligns. But from an acting perspective, it's very interesting. And I know you also played uh, Leonardo da Vinci on the History Channel, it was? or uh, Yeah, the, no, not the History Channel. Uh, the Travel Channel has uh, several series that are called uh, Mysteries, Greatest Mysteries. And they had a show that was called Greatest Mysteries, The Holy Land. And it's an hour-long program as it's broadcast, which is about 48 minutes of film time. And it's about eight-minute vignettes of different stories. And I portrayed Leonardo da Vinci uh, when they told the story that they thought Leonardo da Vinci had forged the Shroud of Turin via making photosensitive chemicals and projecting an image of his own body on the shroud. Uh, now, those particular exercises for the travel channel, for example, uh, are examples of those where you are, I use, the, I don't refer to myself as acting or playing a part, I, I say that I'm portraying someone. So I was portraying Leonardo da Vinci. Somebody else was talking and telling the story. There was no, uh, there was no dialogue on my part. I refer to it as my silent film era. <laughs> But there, in, in that case, there was another example where you have to be careful not to let your logic get in the way of what the director is trying to do in terms of artistic work. Because there was a scene where I was portraying Leonardo da Vinci, and I was supposed to be mixing a concoction that would be photosensitive chemicals to put on the Shroud of Turin. And they, the way they had the light set up in the room uh, was as if I was standing in a castle 
with a bright light of sunshine, sunshine coming right into my face, right into the chemical that I was working. And as I drove home that evening, I thought, you know, if somebody was working with photosensitive chemicals, they'd be working in a back corner with barely any light at all. They wouldn't be standing in a sun. Uh, so would you say extra work is a good way to get started with acting, or is it better just to dive right into it? Personally, I don't think that extra work or background work, is, as it is called now, uh, provides much of any value in terms of breaking into acting. Uh, I, I believe that the, the only thing you really learn doing background or extra work is you learn perhaps how to behave on set. You end up being on set where you're observing professional actors, you're seeing the, the best equipment in the industry in play, you see how the director is, is directing other actors, if you're lucky. If, if, if you're in a scene like you and I were on Unbreakable Kenny Schmidt, the set was so tight and such a small set that you could hear everything that was happening with the principal characters and the direction that was given. Other times, as an extra, you're just a sea of humanity in the background, far removed from what's happening, and, and you're really learning very little. Uh, I think the way to, outside of the educational experience, the way to get started with, with acting is with community theater, with student films, uh, then working into some of these other... Uh, in quotes, reality-based TV programs and so forth. So I guess a, a lot of uh, so I guess a lot of unpaid work to get more paid work. Is what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. The first year, first year I worked, um, it was min minimal pay. I kept track of my expenses and uh, my transportation costs and so forth, and I consistently lost money the first year. But it's like someone who's changing a job. I've had eight different jobs in my corporate career, and every time you change jobs, you find out brand new who you are, what type you are in your lifespan in terms of the job you're going into. You learn interviewing skills. You learn how to interview for the job that you're going into. And I think the first year or two of acting is a matter of discovering what your type is. Uh, what sort of roles you would be good for, what type of character you'd be good for. And as you progress, you end up submitting on fewer roles, but you get more of the roles that you've submitted for. I've finally landed a commercial. I've uh, been doing this just about a year and a half now, and uh, have auditioned for several commercials. Uh, and I'm, I'm supposed to be uh, on a shoot tomorrow. I'm saying I'm supposed to because you never know if things are going to change. And um, so, what would you say? Uh, what kind of what type of role do you usually get casted for? Do you uh, would you do you ever like worry about being typecasted, or do you think that's just unavoidable? I think it's unavoidable to be typecast in these days because so many people are acting. Uh, there's very few few people that have the wherewithal and, and have the, the good fortune of being able to play multiple different types of characters. Uh, for me, you know, at my age, you start doing student films, there's, there's very little opportunity in student films to have a meaty role. You're, you're generally playing somebody's father or grandfather or angry uncle or crotchety old guy that's uh, you know far removed from the main point of the story. Um, but you, you use those opportunities to get yourself some exposure and some things on your reel. And I think it's important not to try to be all things for all people. If you if you try to present yourself to perform roles as a corporate lawyer or a corporate attorney, that's going to limit you from a whole host of other types of roles. On the other hand, if you grow your hair long and your beard long, 
it's going to eliminate the possibility of you working as that that corporate lawyer or accountant or or FBI agent or so forth. So you have to try to figure out what's most natural for you, and and I think try to stick with that and just make sure you're not wasting people's time by by constantly submitting and trying to go into roles that you're really just not fit for. And uh, would you say like uh, extra work maybe is just a good way to make connections and maybe just see how the business works, as you were saying? Or? Yeah, what I do, I, I've just about finished, I think, working as an extra. Uh, but when I did start doing it, I went into it with the attitude of taking inventory at the end of each day and trying to figure out what I learned. And it would be learning how a professional production works, how a given director works, maybe observing how a named actor works. Sometimes it would be the development of relationships and networking with people, meeting on occasion, uh, casting directors, people that were working on developing their own film projects and having an opportunity to participate. Uh, I think it's a worthwhile exercise. I just don't think one should try to make a career out of it. Yeah, and even if, because uh, uh, when we did the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, I, I watched uh, the scene uh, that we did, and even though I was right in the front, uh, I, I wasn't even like in the shot. Like even if it's it's very unlikely you'll even be seen or anything in it too. So. It is. I've I've done probably about twelve or fifteen shows as background or extra work, and. At this point, most of them I don't even bother trying to watch to see if I'll show up. If I think based upon what we had done on that particular film that I might show up, I'll try to watch it. And, and, I, and I did find myself for some fleeting seconds on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, but I've worked on other shows where we'd be on set for 12 to 15 hours under kind of grueling conditions, either very hot or very cold, and when it is condensed to film, everything that you've done for that particular scene boils down to about 30 seconds on screen. It's, it's like when someone gets a headshot. You, you, you get 300 photographs taken, and you find that four of them are good. And I think for every hour of film that's done, or hour of video that's presented, they may utilize one to two minutes, and it's very easy to find that your moment was cut out, or, you know, you're not even in the scene. And uh, what can you say about the kinds of people you meet on set, and uh, what have your interactions with them been like? Well, for the most part, on, on set, when you're talking film work, unless you're talking student films, you end up talking to everybody. Uh, but for the most part, you're talking to other actors and you're talking to uh, the production assistants. You know, the production assistants, especially on extra work, are those people that are given the job of making sure that the extras are available when they need them. Uh, I wonder sometimes whether it's a punishment position for these people because uh, they they don't generally seem very happy <laughs> run herd over 150 extras for any given day. Once you get on set, it may be a production assistant or a producer or an assistant director uh, that will place you and and tell you you know how you should be behaving when you're doing extra work. Now, when you're doing something like uh, the investigation discovery, murder recreation shows, things of that sort, you have a lot more interaction with the director as they're telling you what they want you to do, and you have a little bit more opportunity to talk. Um, but it's not like you're becoming best buddies with, with the directors and the producers on these shows. So, um, I, gu I guess it, so. I guess it can work as networking to a point, but it's it has its limitations, I guess is what you're saying. I think it has its limitations. I think the, the fantasy of being discovered 
especially doing extra work, is, is just that it's a fantasy. It happens extremely rarely. Nobody is out there looking at extras saying, who can I make into a big name? Uh, if your behavior is miserable, you can certainly get a bad name very quickly. Um, it remains to be seen. I think one of the ideas is when you are working on student films or perhaps working on some of the lower budget non-union work, and everything I've been talking about so far is, is non-union, when you're working on some of these shows, whether it's Investigation Discovery, Travel Channel, etc., you always have to keep in mind that the directors that you're working with uh, are almost always fairly young and they have a career in front of them and they're going to keep growing. So you never want to alienate anyone. And you always want to stay in people's good graces. Uh, you could well find yourself five years from now uh, going up for a substantial role that you're thrilled about and find that you're working with somebody that uh, you had a miserable experience with as a, as a student director in a student film. You got to be very careful to to uh, keep everything in perspective that way. So, would you say it's worth it for someone who's serious uh, about acting to join the union? Um, you know, twenty-five, thirty years ago, joining the union I think was more of a necessity, and I, I get that perspective from instructors I've had and people I know that have been in the union for a long, long time. Um, the, um, there is a lot more non-union work available at the moment than there was 25, 30 years ago. And for a new actor, uh, that provides a lot of opportunities to learn things and make their mistakes and get better at the craft working in a non-union environment. Uh, some people are obsessed with joining the union. Uh, they think that joining the union itself does not make you better. Uh, joining the union uh, allows you to pay some fairly heavy dues, offers you some very good benefits and protection if you can get work. But there are so many people in the union and the competition for the union jobs is so stiff. There's many people that enter acting, get obsessed with joining the union for one reason or another, are lucky enough to qualify to join a union very early in their life or in their career, and then find after two or three years they can't get any work because they have to do only union work. I've been advised, join the union when you have to. Uh, as you and most of your listeners probably know, you know, for the, the Screen Actors Guild, uh, SAG-AFTRA, you know, the requirements to get into the union first is you need to have a speaking part in a, in a SAG film in under five. That makes you uh, eligible. It doesn't mean you have to join. A lot of people jump and join. You can do a second performance for a SAG signatory under five or greater. You still don't have to join. If they are union projects, you're still getting the coverage and the benefits of having been a union member. After you've done two of those, uh, you're, you're referred to as a must-join. If you want to do a third job that's union, then you have to join the union, pay the initiation dues, and become a member in good standing. And every teacher I have had has said, don't join the union until you have to. Um, as you also know, with, with background work, uh, background workers occasionally get waivers to be able to be booked doing background work as, as, a, as a union, on a union voucher. And once you collect three of those, again, you are eligible to join the union. And a lot of people think they want to do that. And uh, I think you just need to understand how much work you may have available for you as a union versus a non-union person. I go on to a set as an extra where they have 150 extras. And out of that, it was, it was 150 extras 
if it's a TV program or a cable TV program, 25 of those people must be union. All the others are non-union. So there's an awful lot of non-union people that are not getting work in those situations. And uh, how do you go about promoting yourself as an actor, and what has that been like? Well, I do have a web page, uh, www.alm3.com. I maintain my headshots and my various looks there. There's a page with my reels. Uh, there's my resume to try to keep current. Um, I have a Facebook acting account, Al Matram Actor, where I'll let people know uh, things I've recently worked in and uh, links to my reels and so forth. Um, and talk to people when I when I meet them on set. Uh, the, one of the next steps for me is to be able to develop an earning history that will allow me to talk uh, to some agents that may have an interest in you. Uh, everybody talks about, oh, do you have an agent? Get an agent. And if you think about it, an, an agent works based upon your commission. And if you're unproven and if you, you cannot prove that you're making a certain amount of money, why would an agent want to talk to you? Okay. So you, you have to be a self-starter. You have to learn how to self-submit. You have to learn how to be able to critique yourself and accept criticism and figure out a lot of this stuff on your own. And then once you develop a bit of an earning history, perhaps you've had multiple good paying roles or commercials, now you can position yourself to try to select an agent and present yourself to them and see if they can help you. So uh, what has it been like for you going on auditions? Have you learned a thing or two over the years? Or? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, auditioning is just like interviewing for a job. And when you first start, uh, you make a lot of mistakes. There's, there's a lot of nuances in auditions. And you learn to read, read the people. You know, sometimes you're auditioning and you can tell that it's being done very informally and kind of uh, friendly. Other times it can feel very hostile. Get, get in, get out. Uh, you know, we don't even know why you're here. Uh, one of the things, uh, one of the big debates is whether you should memorize sides if you've been given them ahead of time. And I've heard people that have been in the industry for a long time that are heavily involved with the union that says, no, don't memorize the sides. Uh, they said it's, it's actually against union rules to require people that are auditioning to memorize their lines before they come in. On the other hand, if you're the casting director and you just had four people come in to read for a role and you provided them the sides four days ahead of time and two of those people have memorized those lines and can speak very spontaneously as they're following your direction on the interview, on the audition, and two other people are constantly reading them, which would you pick? So, uh, what would you say, like, about the similarities and differences, like, uh, as far as the business goes and everything with theater and with, you know, film and TV? Well, theater, I've really had very limited experience. I've, I've worked, I did the one job with community theater. Um, but what I recognized in that experience is that any theater production, any theater commitment is a very big commitment. You spend an enormous amount of time in rehearsals, uh, doing theater to the point where I'd be hard-pressed to do any other project. And, and in community theater in particular, you may be engaged for two and a half to three months of rehearsals five to seven days a week during the evenings and on weekends for a show that might run a total of eight showings. Uh, and I think people need to be aware of that. And. I, I had put something on my Facebook page, and I fear I offended some of my friends that are very 
involved in community theater, but what I had said is I, I think community theater is a great thing for the community. It's a great thing for people that want to act and exercise some of that creative part of themselves while they're holding down a full-time regular job. It's something they can do in the evenings and commit to and enjoy and meet people and, and hone their acting skills and do those three or four performances and then move on. Uh, for myself, I'm, I'm trying to make this into a paying retirement career and I just haven't found it worthwhile to take too much time investing all that amount of time in, in a theater exercise. Uh, in the time that I would do a, a theater production, I could potentially do four student films, four independent shorts, uh, you know, half a dozen commercials, etc. Uh, so, you know, I think you also need to determine where your goals are. A lot of people love theater and they like that organic portion of things with a live audience. Other people prefer the intimacy of, of working on a film. And I guess, uh, would you say you enjoy film a bit better too? At the moment, at the moment I do. The uh, because I can get more done in a given period of time. Um, and with with film, you know, film. When you take the classes on working for film, it's intimacy. The, the camera is on your face. You can't hide anything. Okay, on, a, on on stage you can you can smirk or smile and people say, Oh, that's you know, he's smiling, he's smirking, he's laughing, he's having happy but there's a lot more subtleties, the micro expressions that are on your face uh, that can't be hidden when you're doing film and, and it keeps you very honest that way. And uh, what's some of the latest work you've done and what do you have planned for the future? Let's see, I, I worked on an episode of um, uh, The Haunting of, it's another one of those TV shows that's, it's, that features a, a known actor. It seems every known actor has some sort of paranormal experience in their background. And they, <laughs> and they pick these actors and they describe to a psychic what this thing is that's troubling them. And, and on the show, the psychic goes to the property and talks to the spirits and determines what what is going on and tells the person what they think is going on, what they're hearing. And then they have other actors come in to recreate those scenes. So I, I recently portrayed a, a ranch owner on a film on something called The, the Haunting of... Uh, and they had my character and what was supposed to be my nephew uh, engaged in a, a violent argument about whether we were going to sell our land or not uh, and, and fighting with each other extensively. This was two weeks ago, and uh, I think we both need classes on stage combat because I know I'm still sore from the wrestling we did. Now, there's an example of something I don't expect any great recognition. Uh, I doubt if I'll even be recognizable on when this thing is broadcast, but I consider it head and shoulders more than working as background or, or as an extra because, again, it was improv, but there was some genuine acting, some you know, portraying a character, trying to stay with given circumstances, following the direction of the director, whether or not it gets committed to film. Uh, I've done a couple of other student films earlier this year. Um, I'm doing student films these days if they pay. Uh, I've noticed a trend in the past year that uh, a year ago I never saw anything advertised. Uh, on self-submit websites such as Actors Access or casting networks that they offered less than $100 a day unless it was a student film and it was for free. And uh, I've seen a trend that uh, more and more there's, there's reality shows that are offering people $25 to $50 a day. And when you live in New Jersey to commute to New York, just, just going to an audition and a callback burns more money than you make in that one day of work. Um, but I'm I'm at this point open. I'm looking at 
feature films, which by definition is something longer than 80 minutes. I'm looking at feature films, independent shorts, uh, commercials, industrials, you know, the, the commercials and the lots of commercials in the medical industry, especially for people at my age where they want a patient that's portraying a, somebody with diabetes or heart disease or something like that. Yeah, and, I, and I, uh, when I've been applying, I've seen a lot of uh, those jobs where it's like no pay, but we get a uh, $25 stipend, or I think it's... Yeah, yeah they call it a stipend, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess like unless you live in the city, it's kind of hard to do. It's kind of hard to do, and, and even at that, if you're living in the city, that's not an inexpensive lifestyle. And a $25 stipend, I, you know, it's, I don't understand it. I, you know, I, I don't understand why people expect people to work for nothing. You know, we, we have the debate about what the minimum wage is in this country, yet we, we expect people working as actors to work for nothing more than the credit. It seems that there must be an awful lot of people that want their 15 minutes of fame. And I don't know if it's been slower now in the summer, or if it's been... It seems like there was more work at one time. Well, I, I started self-submitting and really looking for things, looking for this type of work around January of uh, 2014. And I, I have noticed there's a bit of an annual cycle. It does tend to slow down a little bit in during the summer. You know, springtime is, is filled with student films as people are trying to do their thesis. Uh, springtime is also the time when a lot of production companies, just like regular corporations, have a lot of money in their budgets and they, they are spending to get work done and programming done and so forth. Things slow down in the summer, and when the fall comes, it's kind of the, the back end of that same situation. You have you have students doing their their freshman or sophomore year, you know, uh, earlier semester projects, and you also have people using up their budgets for the remainder of the year. So uh, the summer is a is a can be a bit of a dry spell. For me, it's worked out well. I had an audition a week and a half ago for a commercial. I had another one today. And, uh, you know, that, that's more commercial auditions than uh, in a short period of time that I've had in quite some time. And I attribute that to better understanding my type and, and submitting for the right roles. So uh, have you met many famous people on set? And so what have they been like? Well, how do you define me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are people I recognize, but I haven't met them. Uh, and you do notice that some some people that are, I guess, what you might call famous or, or, or big names, some of them uh, behave exactly like all the textbooks tell you they would behave if you're in the role of an extra background person. and. You're basically wallpapered. You're not there. I, I have noticed uh, a couple that were at least acknowledged the presence of extras in the room. When we were doing our episode of uh, Kimmy Schmidt, there was a uh, a very big name actor there who, you know, would occasionally do little asides to to the background people, etc., which which showed he was human I human and recognized you as being human as well. And and that's always nice. But you know, when you walk up to the guy a day later and have a conversation in the street and say you met him and he knows you and you know him, no. <laughs> that doesn't really happen. And uh so what would you say your ultimate goal is as an actor, uh, and where would you one day like to be? Well, I suppose I'm a bit of a mercenary, you know, having doing this as a retirement job. Um, I'm not much so sure I'm an artist, uh, but I'd like to earn enough money engaged in this activity to, uh, you know, help moderate some of the expenses of retirement. Uh, pensions. Uh, became a thing of the past during my corporate career. 
So uh, it's always nice to have a little extra cash flow coming in and, and the social context. So, you know, I mean, obviously, I'd love to I'd love to get into something that's a recurring role on a on a broadcast TV program and become union or or get a national commercial that's on broadcast TV or you know any of that stuff. But uh, what I don't do is limit myself and say I'll I'll never be able to achieve a high level. I always work as if I'm going to achieve the highest level, but don't let it get me down if I end up you know just doing these hundred dollar a day shows and you know hundred dollar a day commercials and things of that sort and uh, do you have any advice for uh, any other aspiring actors or well um, it's it's all about patience and I it depends where you are in your life cycle you know I mean I I can only relate to this as a guy who who is retired who's 60 years old and is doing this and a lot of people say gee that's so brave that's so interesting that you decided to do this so late in life well it's also very low risk for somebody of my age you know the alternative is, is, is doing some other thing but there's not a lot of risk involved in it uh, and if you're the type that likes to keep learning and doing things it, that's great uh, there's also some advantage in terms of entering this field later in life uh, the, the competition isn't as stiff I mean there's much fewer roles for for somebody my age and type but there's also substantially fewer actors that are vying for those especially when you have first start people my age that are working in this field are either new people like myself or they're well-established actors that are doing the high-end work uh, those that have been doing this for 30 years and are still working at the low end are the folks I wonder why they're bothering uh, for a younger person it's, it's uh, you know everybody tells you everything you read is never give up never give up keep trying keep trying keep trying I'm not sure I entirely agree with that obviously everybody that's made it did not give up but I'm sure there's a lot of broken dreams as well so you, you need to keep in perspective and determine how important it is in your life and uh, any final thoughts or things you'd like to say Well, uh, thank you for the opportunity to uh, be on your podcast. If anybody's interested, I certainly ask that they do look at my webpage, www.walm3.com. Um, and uh, maybe I'll meet some of you uh, on some of these shoots. Stop by and say hello. All right. Well, uh, I think that does it for this episode of uh, BSing with Sean K. Uh, thanks again, Al, for coming on. All right, Sean. We'll talk to you later. And uh, I should have more episodes coming soon, so uh, stay tuned.